0: Hey everyone, you're listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss their favorite works of literature and poetry and how they might shape how we think about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina, and I am co-PI on the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project, which, along with this podcast, is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. In this episode, titled A Twitch Upon the Thread, I speak with Father Paul Mankowski about Evelyn Waugh's celebrated novel, Head Revisited. Our topics are love, grace, freedom, and reconciliation in the twee rarefied worlds of Lord Sebastian and Lady Julia Blight. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I am very pleased to have Father Paul Mankowski on the podcast with me today. Father Mankowski is the scholar in residence at the Lumen Christi Institute here at the University of Chicago. Today we are discussing Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited here in the Gavin House Library. Welcome to the podcast, Father Mankowski.
1: Thank you. Happy to be part of the conversation.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. This episode, we're going to be talking about Evelyn Waugh, in particular, his famous novel, Bride's Head Revisited, the sacred and profane memories of Captain Charles Ryder. I wondered if we could start off by just hearing a little bit about who Evelyn Waugh was. What kind of writer he is or was, and what his influence was, and then maybe say something about the importance of this particular novel.
1: Waugh was born in 1903 of English parents. lived in a suburb of London for his the earlier part of his life. He attended Lansing College, a a public school in the English sense.
0: What Uh, is a public school in the English sense?
1: A secondary school which is what we'd call private, uh, where the... So uh, by public, you mean private. Precisely. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> he went from there to Oxford, read history without particular distinction, and upon leaving, taught school for a few years, and then commenced his career as a writer. His first book actually was uh, a biography of Rossetti, and he was to write several travel books, three biographies and a number of novels for which he's, he's most famous.
0: What was his class background?
1: Upper middle class. His father was himself um, a publisher. Mother was the daughter of uh, several higher clerical families.
0: So, But he, is, he was not from an aristocratic family. He was not. Right. In
1: fact, he, throughout his life, he was chaffed by aristocrats for sometimes trying to insinuate himself a little too vigorously into their company.
0: Would he have been of the same class background as the main character of the novel? I think are... so. Okay. Yes.
1: There are some autobiographical resemblances in certain respects.
0: There are. Okay. Well, maybe we can talk about those if they're important when they, when they come up. As you mentioned, he's most famous for his novels. The novel that we are talking about in particular is Brideshead Revisited. And so I just wanted to invite you to say a bit about this novel. Why, of all of his novels, do you think this one had the most influence? And maybe we could just say a little bit about what the novel's about.
1: I'm uncertain why it has particular popularity. The um, commercial reason would have been that it was accepted as a Book of the Month Club selection in the United States after publication, which oh, okay. which in a sense guaranteed it uh, an enormous readership.
0: Good. Okay. So he, he was coronated by someone, or this novel was coronated by someone. So it had an influence there, but it's still very influential. I mean, so I went to the Barnes & Noble in Columbia, South Carolina, where there's very little literature, sadly, even though it's a bookstore. And this is the only Evelyn Wah on the shelves, so its impact has somehow been enduring.
1: I think that's true. Obviously, the British televised, serialized presentation had a huge effect. For many people, even Wah simply means the author of Rise That or Visited. The um, television series is perhaps easier to understand simply because they were able to fo- focus on the um, more Dazzling aspects of uh, Oxford life and...
0: And Brideshead.
1: And upper class British life as well.
0: Well, do you think that it deserves its enduring legacy apart from its getting it by chance?
1: I do. I'm not convinced that it was best work, nor was he, in fact. His novel, Helena, was work he himself thought was his finest piece of writing. But, no, definitely... Deserves to be read and reread.
0: Okay, good. So why? What's so great about this novel?
1: Was able to make convincing and human characters, which are difficult to do so precisely because their tendency to dazzle.
0: They're upper crusty.
1: They are. And the, the narrator, Charles Ryder, who is a, an artist, a, a painter, is himself bedazzled by one member of this aristocratic family who's with him at Oxford. Sebastian. But Sebastian, Sebastian Flight. Flight and comes to fall in love with the entire family and, and his bedazzlement dissipates in the years that, that he comes to, to know the family better and deepens as it involves with the series of family crises that, mm-hmm. that it goes through. And these crises are, in a sense, Pedestrian, ordinary—the uh, kind of problems that all families are touched with. That's to say, there's a divorce problem with an uh, alcoholic family member. Uh, there's, are his
0: parents actually divorced? I mean, they're living apart, but are they actually divorced? You're, you're right.
1: I stand uh, corrected. They—they're—they're yeah. separated. They live—they uh, live apart. Precisely. That's right.
0: The father has a has a nice little palace in Venice, and and the mother lives at Bride's Head, and Bride's Head is. How can we describe Brideshead?
1: Vast, noble house. I believe we're supposed to imagine it being built in the uh, early 17th century. Mm-hmm. It to be, in a sense, a culmination of everything that was noble and sublime in British architecture. Right. Domestic so, architecture. Yeah. It.
0: So it's at least the way that it's described, but certainly in the British miniseries. House seems inadequate to it. <laughs> it seems more like an estate. And they also
1: have a house in London uh, that we're, we're told as right. well, March main house. So.
0: And it's, it's not as elaborate as Versailles, but it's, it's large and stately. So we have an aristocratic noble gentleman who marries a Catholic and he converts He does. Yes, so the father converts to Catholicism. I don't believe that we hear much about that conversion in the novel, but we know that it's happened.
1: Sebastian tells Charles that his father converted in order to marry his mother. So presumably it was a... So a stipulation. Can, his,
0: yes, he of converts part. for love of, of Lady Marchmain. Right. That's an interesting fact that will surely come up in, in our analysis of the story. But so we have these parents and they are separated, but of course, not divorced because I'm assuming the Catholicism in the family. And we have, let's just call it an estate, for lack of a better word, Brideshead. Um, Charles gets to Brideshead through Sebastian. Right. right. They Miss. meet at Oxford in a comical way. Sebastian ends up throwing up in his, in his dorm room and as an apology, the next day makes this elaborate lunch and they get to know one another and they become friends. Now, the first part of the book, so the book is three parts. Part one is called "Et an Arcadia ego. And this is really, I think the story of Charles, and Sebastian, and I think maybe Charles' love for Sebastian. So maybe we could talk about what happens in book one.
1: We're told about the, um, the beginning of the relationship of Charles and Sebastian. It's um, clearly unambiguously a romantic relationship, mm-hmm. and we're given to understand that sexual misbehavior is part of what Charles in recollection calls the, the naughtiness mm-hmm. uh, of the time.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: he believes that um, in the early months of the relationship, this was his, the happy childhood he had never had before mm-hmm. realized in this. And I myself am unconvinced by the novel that Sebastian loves Charles. And there's nothing particularly in his demeanor and the few letters that are quoted that suggest that the affection is reciprocated particularly strongly, and in fact, the romantic aspect of the relationship does sort of fade into a a more conventional friendship, uh, Mm -hmm. one might call it, only to pass into a highly unconventional one in the the later books. But it is the mechanism through which Charles is introduced to the flight family. When Charles shifts his affections, at least his amorous affections, to Julia, the sort of Happened as a, a second deepening of his uh, or second tier to his relationship with the family as a whole.
0: I think Charles falls in love with Sebastian in some sense. I think that's true. And there's a question of what what exactly is he drawn to in Lord Sebastian Plate? What is it about Sebastian that really captivates, charms Charles?
1: Well, there's a um, a childishness that Sebastian has preserved. Right. Into his early manhood. Right. That... He carries uh, around a teddy bear. Right. And <laughs> it, the, the early Priggish Charles is, finds this um, over the top, but yeah. in fact he, he comes to be charmed by it mm-hmm. himself. And at least one passage, he's sort of gazing at Sebastian's profile while they're both um, lying down in the grass outside smoking cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And he talks about this epicene beauty, which fades with the first frost. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's clearly infatuated with his, uh, th- the physical beauty that we're to imagine right. in Sebastian. But all the family has this capacity of charm as well, which is very two-edged throughout the right. novel. And the character, Anthony Blanche, specifically warns right. Charles, the artist-to-be, mm. how deadly charm can be
0: at one of his exhibits of his artwork in London.
1: He says it kills love, uh, it kills art and I'm afraid dear Charles it has killed you.
0: So Sebastian Flight, he's, he's very eccentric, he's very charming. From all we can gather, he's he's quite beautiful. And then he also brings Charles to Brideshead, which is this stunning larger than than life place, certainly by contrast to Charles, you know, very modest apartment home in London you know he's he's alone with his father and that's the other contrast is that Sebastian has this this complicated family and rich family life all tied to this place and Charles he says you know it's, it's just my father and I his mother died when he was very young and we, we're not given any indication that uh, his home life is, is anything that he has especially close attachment with
1: on the, on the contrary, right? He's, he's, his home is a, a dreadful place, and, and we're meant to feel that. I mean, his father is a, an eccentric whose eccentricity is particularly focused on repelling borders, including his, his own son.
0: Right. His relationship with his father seems very
1: cold. It is.
0: You know, there's this happy period between the two of them. And then, as you say, Sebastian starts to drink much more heavily. His family, in particular his mother, tries to cut him off to keep him from becoming a drunk, which is very clearly the path that he's on. Sebastian feels that Charles is taking his family's side. Why does Sebastian take this turn? I mean, what instigates that?
1: I think that Wa intends us to understand that as Sebastian's holiness, his Love of God as coming in into conflict with precisely that boyish desire to frolic and follow pleasure. And that when Sebastian realizes that he can't perpetuate this forever.
0: Was there something in particular that brings this realization in him?
1: I think that you see the, the a sort of oxygen being sort of pumped out of his world by his family unintentionally. That's to say his mother's astute possessiveness. There's the Oxford Don, Mrs. Samgrass, mm-hmm. who's kind of a indirect hireling of his mother mm-hmm. that sort of poisons Oxford for him. Right. And precisely the charm of his other family members, in a sense, impedes him from exp- bloating in rage at them and so as we're incapable of expressing the conflict in normal ways paradoxically because of the charm of his family and because of the hold that religion has on him in spite of himself Mm -hmm. we see him crumble
0: because he doesn't want religion to have this hold on him precisely but he can't quite let go
1: he can't and he, his sister uh, Julia, and their father, in their, their various ways, are at war against the Catholicism that they can't quite shake.
0: Right. And the Catholicism seems very much associated with the mother, with Lady Marchmain.
1: Well, uh, yes and no. Well, when you, you think that both Bridie and sort of Cordelia have a quite uncomplicated ability to, to love the faith. Mm-hmm. For them, it simply
0: is not a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet... Well, Brady is so reserved. It's hard to say that he really joyfully... <laughs> I don't ever think of Brady and joyful, really, in this that's
1: a fair. <laughs> that's a fair comment. I <laughs> yeah. agree. By the same token, it seems entirely unproblematic. Oh, it's for completely him, right. unproblematic. Everything is him. obvious yeah. uh, for him in this respect. Yeah. But Lady Marchmain has a sort of a feline aggression that expresses itself in various indirections, and that knots up Sebastian and, in a different way, Julia, because, Mm -hmm. obviously, they're struggling to emancipate themselves from the truth Mm -hmm. and failing to do so, while Mm -hmm. their mother is, in a sense, trying to block off exits from the church by her charm and little ploys.
0: It's very clear... That Sebastian, that his alienation from his family is somehow rooted in his mother. That's true. Does that true. seem right? It yeah. does seem right to me. You know, Sebastian is constantly drawing on the similarities between himself and Julia. They have kind of a complicated relationship, because on the one hand, Sebastian wants to acknowledge, you're so much like me, we're both heathens, but then he also wants to keep a distance from her, and he definitely wants to keep a distance between Charles and the family, because he somehow thinks that the extent to which Charles embraces the family is the extent to which he gets bound up in the manipulation and to some extent that seems right. I mean it, it seems so, like it's what happens in fact.
1: Well, when challenged by Charles, "Why are you trying to hide your family from me? Are you embarrassed of me or, or mm-hmm. of them?" Sebastian says, "Well, they're also madly charming that they'll sort of take you away from me and right. I want you for myself." And even though that's said half in jest, it's more than half true, I believe. Right. And Sebastian does feel that everyone, with the possible exception of his father, is a potential threat to the affection that he believes Charles owes him.
0: And in fact, they go visit the father in Venice, and there's an interesting conversation between Charles and his father's mistress, Cara. Right. In that conversation, if memory serves, we learn that, well, at least Cara seems to think that there's a deeply problematic aspect between Lord and Lady Marchmain. Did you want to talk about that at all? That conversation and
1: what Cara says is they're consumed by hate. She says to Charles, "Do you think uh, Lord Marchmain loves me?" And of course, he's taken aback by the question. And then she sort of answers, it's "Not a bit." He says he doesn't love me in the least. His relationship with me is simply devised to keep his wife away. And she says he's, he's consumed with hate. And she goes on to to guess that, in fact, the entire family are incapable of loving other persons. And she says, Sebastian is in love with his childhood, with his teddy bear and his nanny. And that will bring sort of great uh, unhappiness to mm-hmm.
0: him. And she also draws an analogy between Charles' love for Sebastian and Lord Marchmain's love for Lady Marchmain, doesn't she?
1: As I remember, she said in commenting on the affection between Charles and Sebastian, she says this is a love which Englishmen have just before they become men. Right. And she says I think it's better to have it for a man than for a woman. Speaking of Alex, Lord Marchmain's, mm-hmm. uh, he had it for his wife before he was old enough to really love a woman. And Mm -hmm. the result was a disastrous marriage. Mm -hmm. So that love flipped and turned into that insatiable hate that he was consumed with at the present.
0: So I'm looking at page 98 of my version. I just have the penguin, uh, which I picked up at an airport a long time ago. And so this is what Kara says. It's a kind of love that comes to children before they know its meaning. In England, it comes when you are almost men. I think I like that. It is better to have that kind of love for another boy than for a girl. Alex, you see, had it for a girl, his wife. What sort of love is she talking about?
1: I think she's talking about ordinary adolescent infatuation for another person.
0: Love of beauty. Principally, love love.
1: of beauty, which often deceives itself that the delight that it takes in beauty can be projected and realized in a complete set of virtues that one might wish Mm -hmm. in a lover, and, of course, it's very frequently disappointed. Mm -hmm. And sometimes uh, that disappointment can sort of give way to a more mature uh, appreciation, Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes it can't. And when it can't, it can be disastrous.
0: Right. So it's a kind of mad love, falling in love. I
1: I think so. And and the humiliation attached to that failure by uh, Mm -hmm. Lord Marchmain is presumably partly behind his hatred for his wife and through her for all things English.
0: That makes sense, actually. That's helpful to see what he's running away from. Maybe he's running away from his own inability to sustain the sort of love that created the family and, and made Brideshead what it had become. So book two, Brideshead Deserted, Charles leaves, seems to kind of fall out of love with Sebastian, and Julia takes up with this guy, Rex Matram. Let's describe Rex. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, what is
0: Rex, and and why on earth does she fall for him? Because he seems so despicable. What is going on there?
1: Well, I think that for a, a young woman like Julia, a lot of the pleasure that her position gives her isn't giving displeasure to to others. We're told that she was, as it we're fashionably disdainful of the debutante fashions of the time and therefore having a boyfriend who was older, who was wealthy, who um, was an unknown and even had a, a slight air of um, criminality about yeah. him that you know this was quite a catch in a in sense that it was robustly contrary to all the rather twee lilies and champagne, mm-hmm atmosphere of Mm -hmm. uh the park street season Mm -hmm. and so uh, the envy and jealousy that she would cause her friends by being able to sort of parade around with with rex mottram i think was behind a lot of her possessiveness towards him it's hard to see much true affection at any place it seems Mm to me
0: yeah certainly not him for her and She's just a prize for him, you know, because she's quite wealthy. And But I, I think for her... I mean, I sort of wondered if she wasn't doing it just to make her mother mad.
1: I think that's also part of it. And, and I think along with making her her fellow debutantes jealous, also mm-hmm. there's a, an act of aggression against her mother because she knows uh, the degree to which he's... matram will displease her.
0: Right. He's not Catholic, for one thing. He's not,
1: and he's an almost supreme worldling Mm -hmm. uh, be presented as someone uninterested in anything except his own pleasure and power
0: so anyway so so they get married and it's a very uneventful thing compared with what they did want they did want this very elaborate wedding he wanted how many cardinals can you get at my wedding and she's like well you know we only have one (laughs) He seems to to have sort of impossible ideas about this grand wedding that they're going to have, and it doesn't pan out, in part because it turns out that he's divorced, and they don't find this out until it's too late to really do anything about it. Uh, But they do get married. And then the other thing to discuss in book two is, of course, what becomes of Sebastian. So we know at the end of book one that he's become a drunk, and that the family is trying to reel him in, as it were. But what happens in book two?
1: He seems to have made his way to Greece, if I'm not mistaken, Mm -hmm. where he forms a relationship with a deserter from the German army. Mm -hmm. And from there goes on to Morocco, Mm -hmm. uh, where they set up housekeeping together.
0: Charles goes to visit him. To tell him that his mother is dying. Right. So Lady Marchmain dies by the end of book two, and and what does he find?
1: When he when he first goes to Morocco, he's directed, I think, by the the British consul to um, an Arab slum, and then he finds Kurt Sebastian's German companion,
0: mm-hmm. sort of
1: in full possession of the apartment because Sebastian himself is sick, drying out um, in the hospital, so. On eventually finding Sebastian in the hospital, he tells him the, the news of his mother's death. And Sebastian's reaction is, poor mummy, she was uh, a femme fatale, wasn't she? Mm-hmm. So there's very little grief expressed. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, sort of no particular sense of relief as well. Mm-hmm. And then he also explains his relationship with Kurt as, for the first time in my life, I'm taking care of someone instead of being taken care of. Right. So that, too, is an indirect comment, I believe, on his mother's unwelcome superintendency mm-hmm. of his entire life. And he says, uh, of course, someone has to be very badly off to be taken care of by me.
0: Is that supposed to be charity on his part?
1: I think we're supposed to understand it as the beginning of this you know, vocation to holiness that he's been pushing away his entire life.
0: Well, how is that? Because it might look like, you know, he's just gone to Northern Africa to drink himself to death, to be as far away from his family as he possibly can. And that doesn't sound holy. So what what is it that makes you think that it's actually a turning point for him in a more positive direction?
1: Partly because... He ends up staying in Morocco and attaching himself in an ambiguous way to a monastery. So I'm sort of looking ahead. Right. But also a remark that Cordelia makes that I think we're meant to take seriously is, she says, I sometimes think Sebastian had a vocation and hated it, uh, by which she clearly means a, a religious vocation.
0: Oh, say to the priesthood. Yes, or to be a
1: monk, perhaps, because in in fact, I think that's the icon of self-abnegation that kind of works throughout this novel. And I believe, too, that I think there is a play on words in Charles' declaration of being with Sebastian, contra mundum, sort of against the world. I mean, on one hand, it's a a reference to uh, St. Athanasius, but I think he turns out being sort of... Leaving the world, mm-hmm. being against the world the way uh, a hermit mm-hmm. or a monk is mm-hmm. a- against the world. The paradox is that his very worldliness is inverted by this disaster. And whereas he could never actually become a, a monk in a full sense because he's a drunk and unstable, mm-hmm. generally, yes. Mm-hmm. And the infirmarian, if you remember on uh, Charles' first visits, speaks glowingly of Sebastian's care for the, the waif you know the, the German boyfriend so to mm-hmm. speak and Charles rather patronizingly says that, you know poor booby he doesn't right. really realize mm-hmm. what's going on mm-hmm. but in fact it turns out the monk is indeed right for all his naivete
0: right so there's an interesting conversation between Cordelia and Charles at the end of book two and it kind of sets up the title of Book three. Do you want to
1: talk about that? It's a very interesting conversation. And once more, I think that Cordelia is able to speak these truths that no one else is mm-hmm. able to give voice to. And she's quite open about this point, her own um, awkwardness and the awkwardness of the situation now that Rex has married Julia mm-hmm. and that relationship has not prospered.
0: So they are having this conversation and it's the closing of the chapel at Brideshead and the chapel was built by Lord Marchmain for Lady Marchmain as a wedding present. Right. And they're closing it after Lady Marchmain's requiem mass, presumably Sebastian was not at that mass and you know, there's a, a couple of interesting things there. One is there's this Latin phrase, which I think comes from the Good Friday service.
1: Right. It's, a, it's the first verse of the Book of Lamentations. The Jews in exile are lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. And so the quomodo sola sedit civitas is referring to the... The city of Jerusalem. You know how lonely sits the the empty city, which once Mm -hmm. was so full. And this phrase prompts uh, Cordelia to think of her the the chapel. You know as the temple of Jerusalem that has been Mm -hmm. gutted and emptied. Mm -hmm. But I think that again, the the title of the book, *Brideshead uh, Revisited*, also flips forward to the the very end of the book where Charles Ryder now an infantry officer in the mm-hmm. British Army during World War II, comes to Brideshead, mm-hmm. the, uh, the estate, which has been requisitioned, commandeered for, for army use. A junior officer informs him that this chapel is now in use for, for R.C. soldiers. Mm-hmm. And so the sanctuary lamp has been rekindled there paradoxically by an act of officialdom. Mm-hmm. And Lady Julia is in fact you know, Praying, found praying you know, In this chapel Because she herself mm-hmm. has by this point Undergone gone, gone, gone a conversion So in a sense at this point What moves Charles' heart Is the opposite of what first dazzled him About uh, Bride's Head All the beautiful people are gone mm-hmm. They're no longer beautiful mm-hmm. The um, house itself Is you know, trampled over by soldiers And sort of used as a Administrative sort of center, but you know the chapel is still, again, used as as a chapel. The, mm-hmm. the Blessed Sacrament is there. So, bedazzlement that he first felt is all proved illusory. Mm-hmm. But what is not illusory is the faith mm-hmm. that is still there.
0: Mm-hmm. There's also an, another thing that Cordelia says that's important for understanding Book Three. I think. And she's talking about what her father said when he became a Catholic to his, to his wife. You have brought back my family to the faith of their ancestors. And then she connects that to this story that the mother was reading the first evening that Sebastian got very drunk at Bride's Head. So this was a, a story about Father Brown who said, talking about catching a thief, I caught him, the thief, with an unseen hook. And an invisible line which is long enough to let him wander to the ends of the world, and still to bring him back with a twitch upon the thread. Now, a twitch upon the thread is the title of book three. So maybe we can return to how to understand that in the context of book three, but... Book three is when Charles falls in love with Julia. They reconnect. They're on a transatlantic boat trip together. There's a terrible storm, and they, they reconnect there.
1: They're returning on a ship from the United States, coincidentally. That's right.
0: That's right. But they didn't know that the other was going to be on the ship. And they fall in love. And by this time, Charles is married. To a woman that he seems to have very little interest in. In fact, when Julia asks him at some point, you know, why did you marry her? He says, well, you know, she was physically beautiful. I was lonely. And in particular, missed Sebastian. And she was supposedly the ideal wife for a painter. So he's in this kind of loveless marriage. And Julia, of course, is... It's incredibly unhappy with this guy that she married. So, so they fall in love and are having an affair, which goes on, I think, for about two years. It's a rather long affair between Charles and Julia.
1: It depends whether you continue to call it an affair after you know he tells his wife that he's leaving her. That is what Charles tells Cecilia that he's not going back to. Yeah, to her, but, well, I don't know. So, we could
0: just call it an adulterous relationship. Yes, I think we'll <laughs> Yeah. Fair enough, yes. Yeah, and it goes on for a long time, and then eventually Julia announces to Charles that she wishes to marry him. Right. You know, that she she doesn't want to just be messing around, that she in some sense wants to legitimate it, even though she knows that as a Catholic, she can't really fully legitimate it. So Charles divorces his wife. With whom he has two children that he seems to have absolutely no interest in whatsoever. Right. I mean, it, it's it's incredible to me how little love he seems to have for his own children or interest frankly and then julia does not have any children with rex they um i i believe she gave birth to a stillborn child right but no no living children and they're trying to make it the case that they can get together and get married and then something very expected happens right which is that Lord Marchmain decides to return to Brideshead.
1: Remember that before that, if I'm not mistaken, Bridey announces his intention to marry.
0: That's right. is that, getting and that, married. And sh- that
1: shocks... Well, first of all, it, it sort of amuses them because yes. he's so unlikely.
0: Yes. And then... Unlikely they, that he would get married or unlikely that he would marry the woman he, in fact, both I to think
1: marry. because he's fairly advanced uh, in age by this time. I mean, he's in he? early oh, yeah. middle age at any rate, I okay. mean, he'd late to marry. And, and of course, it's an unexpected choice he makes, and she's a middle class widow. And then, of course, but
0: she is Catholic, she is very right. Catholic, yes. yes.
1: And precisely because of that, Bridie refuses to have bring her as a guest to the house named Brideshead, giving the reason that Beryl, his fiancée, mm-hmm. is um, a woman of strong Catholic morality fortified by the prejudices of the middle class. Right. And so she would not consent to be your
0: guest. She would be scandalized. S- mm-hmm.
1: And that message, delivered so plainly, sends Julia outdoors where she has that...
0: She has a fit. Uh,
1: ...fit. And then Wa. As narrator says, stringing her sentences and weepings together, it was something like this. And then we have that monologue of Julia in which Mm -hmm. she speaks about her sin and her inability to put her sin behind her, Mm -hmm. how easy it is to do on one hand, and yet how this state of living outside the state of grace is killing her. Yeah, polluting her.
0: And she talks a lot of her childhood at that point, I think, in kind of catechetical tones. She seems to want to escape it all, all this talk of sin. Like she seems to still want to throw it off. But well, it's it's obviously getting to her.
1: Um, yes, it is. And and of course, there's the earlier scene when Bridie kind of breaks in on the wedding present opening party to announce that the wedding's off between Julia and Rex because Rex has a living wife. Right At that point, Julia says something like, I don't believe these priests know everything. Mm-hmm. And she basically declares that she's going to marry him outside the church. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Marry, him anyway. marry
1: him anyway. So she, that, that, that's where she makes her a break. And so from that point forward, she continues to try to ignore the mortal sin Mm -hmm. in which she is living, but obviously can't.
0: Yeah, well, it's interesting because it's also around this time that she explains to Charles that she had wanted to give the faith to her daughter, that she had sort of made this decision when she was pregnant, that even though... She was in this highly irregular (laughs) position herself, you know, according to the faith, that she wanted to give it to her daughter, which is strange. So, on the one hand, she sort of sees something valuable there, but then on the other hand, she wants to, she doesn't want it for herself. So she's conflicted.
1: Again, she's a woman who has everything that a pagan woman would want to have in order to be happy. Right. She has wealth. She has dazzling looks.
0: She's very beautiful.
1: She comes from an aristocratic family, therefore, her life ought to be happy since mm-hmm. she has such extraordinary advantages.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: yet, it has never brought her happiness.
0: Mm-hmm. And or Sebastian,
1: <laughs> precisely.
0: Yeah, I mean they're both miserable. Precisely.
1: And so I believe that she wants to give her daughter sure happiness, a happiness that, in fact she herself never really realized. And Mm -hmm. even though she seems incapable of disfiguring herself, untitling herself, Mm -hmm. making herself poor, and therefore she's trapped in the unhappiness she has made for herself, Mm -hmm. yet she wants genuine happiness for her daughter.
0: Yeah, well, it's so interesting because, in a way, it puts her in precisely the position of her mother, you know, wanting to give the faith to the children. But, of course... You can present the faith to someone. Um, but they but they have to take it up for themselves. And of course she herself was given the faith and rejected it. So it's it's like this deep conflict where she sees, you know, she sees her own unhappiness and every every parent, you know, wants their children to like be happy, which usually means be not like them. <laughs> you know? right. <laughs> Almost in every case. It's just like, please don't be like me. And of course the child always is the image of the parent. It's 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 inevitable. And so again, it's somehow still all bound up with the family. There's an, a couple of interesting things said around this part of the book. One is when when Charles is remembering the way that he felt for Julia at this time, he sort of reminds us, you know, that he hadn't forgotten Sebastian. So actually, in the scene where he does announce that Sebastian was the forerunner to Julia, you know, she says, yeah, that's what you said in the storm. I've thought since, perhaps I'm only a forerunner, too. And this is, I guess, Charles to himself. It's not clear that he's saying this to her. He says, Perhaps, I thought, perhaps all our loves are merely hints and symbols, vagabond language scrawled on gateposts and paving stones along the weary road that others have tramped before us. Perhaps you and I are types, and this sadness, which sometimes falls between us, springs from disappointment in our search each straining through and beyond the other, snatching a glimpse now and then of the shadow which turns the corner, always a pace or two ahead of us. I had not forgotten Sebastian. He was with me daily in Julia, or rather it was Julia I had known in him in those distant Arcadian days.
1: What we're hearing is Charles the agnostic giving voice to his first beginnings of understanding the uh, Catholic theology of earthly probation, call it. That's to say that every aspect of creation and human life is given to us in order to find our way back to God. Mm -hmm. That with St. Augustine, uh, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Yeah, that's exactly
0: what I was thinking. It's so Augustinian in a way.
1: It is. And uh, these human loves, human relationships are adumbrations, foreshadowings, of something infinitely more momentous and therefore not to be despised. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Charles isn't there yet theologically. Mm -hmm. I think Charles is coming to realize that even the the downside, even the the, even failures in relationships have a wisdom to be assimilated, and that they point to things beyond themselves, and therefore allow us, even the failures teach us lessons about what is true and -hmm. what is false. Mm -hmm. that permit us to form deeper relationships and uh, embrace more profound truths later on in our lives.
0: Mm -hmm. We should talk about Lord Marshmaine's death and the extent to which it's significant in Charles' personal growth. I mean, it certainly has a very significant impact on Julia. Mm -hmm. So he comes home to Bride's Head to die. He does. we, We can talk about how he dies and what happens. But after after his death, we really just have Julia's reaction, which leads to the end of her relationship with Charles. And then we sort of flash forward, probably five or six years. Charles is revisit- revisiting Bride's Head as as an officer in the army and is is thinking back on these things. And as you say, visits the chapel. So maybe maybe we could just close up by talking about how the end of book three makes sense of what's called the epilogue and what that has to do with grace. Because, of course, the title is Sacred and Profane Memories, um, but it's supposed to be about the workings of grace, and I, I suppose that you know this must be a, a key place where that happens. And so maybe you could tell us, you know, what Evelyn Waugh would have thought about grace, and how that kind of makes sense of of what happens at the end.
1: Waugh considered titling the novel "A Twitch Upon the Thread." I'm giving that as the principal title of the novel. And mm-hmm. Decided against it, but there too the notion is that God never abandons any of his creatures and therefore those that have strayed furthest from him are still connected mm-hmm. and the merest twitch upon the thread the so the fishing line can sort of pull them back towards mm-hmm. the divine fisherman. Now Cordelia first introduces this notion in a conversation with Charles with respect to Sebastian mm-hmm. but in fact I, I think it's also meant to apply to Julia in another way, and to even Lord Marchmain. So the divine grace—that's to say, God's own life—given as a gift to those as a, a purely gratuitous begs the question, doesn't it? But the notion is, is beyond human merit or mm-hmm. desert. Mm-hmm. This grace transforms. Nature builds on nature Mm -hmm. uh, to make it that which it was originally intended to be. And therefore, every human being was created in order to love, know, and serve God and be blessed with him eternally. Mm -hmm. And so all graces work to bring that about. So here we have this hardened, bitterly anti-Catholic man returning with waspish words to everyone to die uh, repels the first attempt of a priest to uh, You're about to visit Lord him Man, I'm talking right? about large yes. margin of course and and yet proves incapable of resisting indeed welcomes the the grace that God gives mm-hmm. in the priest's second visit to administer the extreme unction mm-hmm. uh, and so we're told that at first when he moves his hand to his forehead Charles thinks he's trying to wipe off the the unction, the, the oil that the priest has placed there. Mm-hmm. But in fact, it's the beginning of his feeble arm making the sign of the cross. And right. when it's complete, we hear Charles say that at that point, I remember that the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Instead of that image of the temple curtain ripping open, I think we're meant to understand that Charles, too, has been changed
0: mm-hmm.
1: by this, by the experience.
0: So what do you think? Because Charles, you know, was, was very offended that they kept bringing the priest in. He was. They thought that he, they were not respecting his wishes and they were forcing it on him. And, the, and, the, and Julie was getting pretty irritated with him. Right. But you think that he is moved by the final acceptance, that he thinks it's genuine.
1: I do. And actually, <laughs> you know, he ends up praying himself at this time. Mm. And he doesn't know that's what he's doing, but he's saying, God, don't let it happen. I mean, don't, don't let him repel the priest. Don't let him repel the sacrament. Mm. And so at that moment, Charles is against his will praying to God and is mm. connected with him. And so I, th- I think the tearing of the temple curtain is image to realize that he himself has been, in a sense, rent and he himself enters the temple of the faith.
0: Julia comes out of her father's room. He's just died. She approaches Charles. She says that she cannot do the thing that her father does, which is to put some good before that of God. Is that because she's moved by her father's return?
1: I think she also realized that the grace that she'd been sort of fighting against all her life has proved too much for her.
0: So we have a change both in Julia and, I mean, you say in Charles, but Charles is not happy about Julia saying this to him. You know, he says, I don't want to make this easy for you. But I think he had slowly come to realize that he was losing her, you know, in progressive stages uh, throughout book three. He realizes, like, she's slipping away from him to a certain extent. But I don't think he's exactly happy that they're not going to get married.
1: Well, there are two trajectories that sort of begin at that moment. Julia is becoming a kind of re- religious woman. or well, and religious, I guess I what I want to say. Giving herself to good works in hard places of the world. So she's going to, in a sense, forego the jewels and the parties and the limousines. And then Charles is going to be caught up by the war later, mm-hmm. but I believe at any rate that when we meet him in the prologue to the book and in the epilogue, mm-hmm. he himself is a is a Catholic. And oh, really? I believe so.
0: Well, that's so interesting. So, you know, he's got this guy, Hooper, that he's talking to. Right. And he describes himself as, this is his final conversation with Hooper. He says, I, n- I never built anything, and I forfeited the right to watch my son grow up. I'm homeless, childless, middle-aged, Loveless, Hooper. He looked to see if I was being funny, decided that I was, and laughed. But I don't think he's kidding. I think he's trying to be honest about himself. But but you know, if he loved God, why would he describe himself as loveless?
1: I think he's a man that has always found it difficult to love. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's uh, for apart certain. from those few months uh, at Oxford, and as you he's point out yourself.
0: Right? right, right. But yeah.
1: he, but even the normal God. love for the children that a parent would have. I mean, who seems to be incapable mm-hmm. of that? Yeah. It's again, obviously, one sees his response to the desirability of Julia, but even in the warmest parts of their affair, there isn't much of the language of love that they manage to exchange. Mm-hmm. There's a, a need for each other, but beyond that, it really doesn't progress. And so he does seem in some way, uh, you know, a loveless Man, coming mm-hmm. both from a household that was loveless, but apart from that moment of Arcadia mm-hmm. in his uh, first year at Oxford, removed from love. But as for his as being a Catholic, it is, it's not clear, it is equivocal, but mm-hmm. we are told well, Hooper in, in reporting that there's a, a sort of RC chapel right. which has this place, said more in your line than mine. It could either refer to Cooper's understanding that Charles Ryder was interested in architecture, mm-hmm. I find it more plausible to think that he knew that he was a Catholic, and that's why mm-hmm. it was more in your line than mine, Right. Than being familiar with, with a chapel, a Catholic right. or a Tory. So,
0: So that would be a, a much happier ending than one in which all he has are memories of these... Distant. And loves. I
1: think the one of the, the sacred memories that perdures as a reality is the, is the faith that he first meets at, at Bride's Head. I mean, he's ignorant of Catholicism until those first rather bumptious conversations with Sebastian, and Sebastian gives these relatively frivolous and twee explanations, mm-hmm. which in fact are taken up amusingly by Bridie and Cordelia mm-hmm. in. Um, Ways which are doctrinally much more solid, mm-hmm. but more persuasive as well. So,
0: well, thank you for that. I have one final question, and that just is: if our listeners are interested in reading more of Evelyn Waugh, what do you, in particular, recommend? You mentioned a, a novella. I think that you think is his finest.
1: Waugh well, believed that the novella *Helena* was his uh, finest bit of writing. The novel Handful of Dust was Wa's favorite novel before he had written Brideshead. I also believe that the most underrated Waugh novel is a comic novel called Put Out More Flags, written in the early part of World War II. Mm-hmm. Brideshead was written toward the end. In fact, Waugh took leave from his army service for a few months too to complete it. Those are the the books that I would point uh, people to.
0: Okay, great. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy podcast that is part of the Virtue, Happiness, and Meaning of Life project, which is generously underwritten by the John Templeton Foundation. For more resources on the works discussed in today's episode, head on over to our project's website, virtue.uchicago.edu, and check out our blog, thevirtueblog.com. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, do me a big favor and give us a positive review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.